All right, our ushers are bringing the note sheets and the Bibles around, so make sure to raise your hand if you don't have a note sheet, or a, a, rather if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to have one of those as we uh, worship together and read along in the scripture that we're going to be reading today, which will be found in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We've been systematically looking back through this book and studying through it. And uh, to begin this morning, I just wanted to just check and see, do you ever take a moment to look back at the progress that we as a church are making and in tackling the full counsel of Scripture. I mean, we in the last several years have gone through the book of 1 Peter, Nehemiah, the Gospel of Luke, the letter to the Galatians. We've been through the book of Ecclesiastes, and now we're working systematically through 1 Corinthians. And so we as a church have been afforded the opportunity to grow stronger in each of these books and to have a real working knowledge of what these books entail in the life of a believer, how they instruct us, how they encourage us and challenge us. And if you've been going to Sunday school, you've been blessed to work through other books, such as 1 John, Ezekiel, uh, Ephesians. And so this is the kind of step-by-step instruction through the Word that helps God's um, people to understand what He has revealed to us so that the Scripture might take shape and so that we might have a better grasp on the overarching message that is portrayed in these holy words. And you know what? If you haven't been with First Family Church for very long, that's okay too. It's never too late to approach the Word of God in this diligent, systematic way. So don't be frustrated if some of the things that we talk about aren't rooted in the kind of context that you can fully grasp yet. Um, That's going to come in time if you continue to pursue the Word and in a prayerful manner. Uh, But instead of getting frustrated by that, just be determined to continually add to your knowledge, to your understanding of God through His Word. And you'll find that as you do, not only will your knowledge increase, but your capacity to love the Lord will increase as well. I think about Isaiah 55 um, as we reflect back on kind of the the meandering path of of learning that God has had us on as a church. In Isaiah 55, 10 through 11, the prophet says, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that 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 goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And so as we look around at our hills, which are gloriously no longer bleak yellow, but they are green and alive, uh, we see how effective the rains are. And the Lord is saying the word of God is even more effective than that. So when you put yourself underneath the teaching of the Word and and you become a Berean and you engage your mind in the things that the Word has to say for you uh, and to you, it's going to help you to grow. It's going to give you greater eyes to see the things of God. Coming to know the Word with greater clarity, that doesn't take the wonder out of the Word. We should not look at the Scripture as a riddle that we try to solve each Sunday, but we should look at it instead as a marvel to behold, something beautiful and timeless and good that we are coming here to understand but also to enjoy. The more we grasp it, the more valuable and useful it becomes to us and the greater confidence we can have in it and in the God who has revealed it to us. So the central and vital role that God has determined His Word to take in the life of His people is part of the reason that we've been taking so much careful time on chapters 12 through 14 of 1 Corinthians. The theme of these chapters is centered on the proper handling of the spiritual gifts that God gives to His church, particularly the gift of speaking in tongues. 
And if this spiritual gift gets understood or used the wrong way, the gift of speaking in tongues, Paul knows that it can give the impression that God has said something that he may not have said. Or it can give the impression that God is a God of random chaos, when in fact he is a God of truth and order, and he wants that reflected in the way that his people worship him. So in the Apostle Paul's efforts to help us to understand the importance of this concept, last week he argued against the Corinthians' unique take on speaking in tongues. So unlike the expressive gift that God had poured out upon the people in the second chapter of Acts at Pentecost, which was understood by all, no matter what language they natively spoke, God allowed the message of the gospel to be understood and comprehended by all who heard it on the day of Pentecost. But in contrast to that, the Corinthian version of tongue speaking was unintelligible. Nobody understood what these folks were saying. It was communicated in such a way that no value was given from the speaker to the hearer whatsoever. So Paul put the priority, last week we looked at the first five verses of chapter 14, Paul puts the priority on prophecy, in other words, on the proclamation of the true word. Uh, that involves preaching the word, that involves teaching the word one to another, sharing scripture with those who need to see what God intends for his people to know. And so prophecy has the priority over speaking in tongues. And it, for his glory, he's going to continue today as we work through uh, verse um, 6 through 19, he's continued to show us what kind of attitude we should have towards these spiritual gifts, particularly in that gift that was being abused among the Corinthians. So if you've got your Bibles and you're open to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, we're going to do something we don't normally do. We're going to tackle a pretty big chunk of Scripture today for all of these verses are thematically linked together and they build upon one another. And so we really don't want to cut the, this section up. So 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 6 through 19. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Let's take a moment and just ask that the Lord would bless our understanding of this word this morning. Holy God, we do not want to be a confused people. We are seeking the kind of clarity 
that brings better unity. And so we ask, God, that as I preach this morning, God, that your Holy Spirit would truly be the one directing things and guiding things. Help me to be uh, not a roadblock to our understanding, but a help to it. Father, I pray that as we think of these scriptures, may other scriptures come to mind so that the full counsel of your will may come to bear on how we're to interpret our understanding of the spiritual gifts, their use among the people, and how we as the body of Christ are to bless one another as we seek you together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to try and cover a lot of ground this morning. So in order to do that, we want to be diligent to stay rooted in our text and to not drift from the written word. So let's read that opening verse again. It says, Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So Paul begins this section with a question. How will I benefit you? Of course, this question assumes that the goal of the spiritual gifts should be as he has been teaching it the whole way through, the goal of building one another up. The spiritual gifts were not something that God gave to us to simply edify ourselves or to make ourselves look more spiritual. Rather, he gave these gifts so that we might share in the blessings of the Spirit with one another. Many of these Corinthians did not share that same attitude, however. Their fascination with speaking in tongues was not based on a desire to build one another up. It was rather used as a means to to leave a more powerful impression on one another about who I am as a believer. It was, a, it was a means by which these Corinthians were showing off what they thought to be evidence of spiritual power. More will be said on that uh, in, in a few moments, but we're going to begin with the practical implications of that self-centered view of the spiritual gifts. If my goal is to help you, then I have to do something. I have to make every effort to communicate to you in a language that you can understand. For how can I reveal something valuable to you? How can I impart knowledge to you? How can I profess God's truth? How can I teach about the Lord and about his will to you? How can I do any of these things that are laid out for us here by Paul in verse 6 if I make no effort to communicate to you in a way that you can understand? Paul lists four categories of useful, useful speech here. It's not an exhaustive list. It is a representative one, and by what, I, what I mean by that is that there are other ways that we might communicate meaning and truth, but these are four examples that should resonate with these Corinthians. God uses these forms of communication to unveil who he is and what he wants to his church. And so the word revelation, what is revelation? Revelation is uncovering what is hidden. It is a, a revealing of truth. When we are lost in our sins, God's truth is largely hidden from us. Sure, I think every creation knows that there is a God. We look in creation, we see the evidence of his mighty hand. Uh, The book of Romans chapter 1 tells us such. But revelation is how God reveals himself to us. And so when we share scripture, we're sharing the revelation of God with one another. Knowledge is a way that we transfer information. It's an accumulation of facts that set up a framework for our understanding. So the more knowledge that we can accumulate, the more knowledge I get, if I can share it with you, then we all are working with the same set of facts so that we might understand our God in, in similar ways. Prophecy is, is the will of God proclaimed and instructed. It is more forceful and persuasive. It, in, it insists that God wants certain things from his people and that we need to respond with either obedience or rejection and disobedience. So prophecy is, is urging us on in, a, in an instructive way. And then teaching. Teaching is helping the mortal mind to make sense of what God has shown. 
And so it's how we, we put it all together, and it should lead to practical applications in our lives. And so what do each of these four modes of communication have in common? They have the potential to build up, to edify those who hear. And yet they are still each of no benefit unless the Holy Spirit is working. And we acknowledge that and proclaim that today, that when, when a person comes under the teaching of Scripture, not only do we preach the truth as clearly as we can, but we also pray that the Holy Spirit is working in their hearts. Because there are things that are obvious to all, such as the fact that there is a God, but there are aspects and elements of who that God is and what His plan of redemption is that are largely veiled from us when we are dead in sin and when we do not have a relationship with Christ. So they all, when activated by the Spirit, can, can edify the hearer. What else do they have in common? They all have the aim of intelligible communication in mind. They're not a series of mysteries and riddles. They are a means by which truth is proclaimed and shared. And so Paul makes use of two analogies to illustrate the importance of true, intelligible communication in the gathering of the saints today. So two different analogies, and then we'll move on to some more specific teaching about how to apply those things. The first analogy is the analogy of music. Mindless sound is not music, it's just noise. And so you might ask yourself, what constitutes music? I know from time to time, people produce something that is experimental, it is avant-garde, they call it music, and it seems to really test the definition of what it means to actually be music, right? Some of you have been exposed to free jazz, might have experienced this, where a bunch of, of uh, musicians, sometimes complete strangers to each other, will get into a room, they won't even choose a key, they'll just start playing their instruments and they'll hope that what they play spurs on a random reaction from the other uh, musicians to make something beautiful or intriguing or, or complicated and complex, but often what does it sound like? It just sounds like musical instruments dying together. That's what it sounds like. It's, it's not particularly beautiful. There's not a form to it. There isn't a progress through it that shows a cohesiveness. So what has to be there in order for something to be rightfully classified is music. What differentiates it from noise? Music is the science and art of ordering tones or sounds in succession, in combination, and in temporal relationships to produce a composition having unity and continuity. I'm sure that came to mind as soon as you thought, what is music, right? But think about the aspects of that. There is order to music, isn't there? You know, a, a, a band cannot play something really beautiful unless they're all functioning on the same tempo. And from time to time, I've tried to clap along to a song and got off the beat. And instead of adding to the beauty of the song, I've hurt the beauty of the song because I wasn't in line with what the rest of the music was doing. You've all experienced that yourselves. So there's an order to the tones. There's a succession. In other words, it progresses in a meaningful way. It's not just something monotonous over and over again. In my household, the Neves household, we have something called the rule of threes. What is the rule of threes, guys? That's right, that's right. When you're around a whole bunch of little kids, you have to make some sanity guidelines. And this is not scripture or anything, but we generally just ask our kids, you can say something that you want to say three times. But if you say it more than three times, it's no longer a message. It's now just being annoying. You're now just trying to get attention for yourself. You're trying to get under your brother's skins. So we have the rule of threes, right? If you just did the same noise over and over again, it might have order. But if it doesn't have some sort of succession or progression, then it doesn't really constitute music, does it? 
And there are temporal relationships to the song. Does it swell and rise together? Is, are the instruments working together to meet certain points in time in the song where things change in unison? And that is the end goal of music. It is unity and continuity, something that is different aspects and elements that have characteristics working together to create something that is better than they were individually. Now, there's a phrase in the English language that captures the essence of that definition. When someone hears something that makes sense, something that clarifies, something that brings stability and hope to them, you might hear them respond by saying, wow, that is music to my ears. You've heard that idiom before, right? That little, that little saying. Something can't be music to the ears unless it is ordered, unless the sounds used to produce it have a meaningful relationship to one another, and they bring greater clarity and less confusion. This is true, too, of spoken language. Unless the words being spoken carry an ordered meaning that has the potential to communicate a meaningful concept from one mind to another, then it is not speech, it's just noise. Paul makes reference to two classes of instruments here when he's referring to these musical instruments as an analogy. He says in verse 7, If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And this first category describes instruments that simply communicate beauty, beautiful sounds, right? And this is interesting as music from these type of instruments don't portray distinct meanings. It's not like they're telling a real story. They might invoke a feeling or a mood, but they don't have words that come to mind when you hear certain notes necessarily. But these instruments even, when they are played in a disorganized and unharmonious way, they stop having value to us because they don't communicate the beauty that instruments have the potential to communicate. There is a beauty to communication between brothers and sisters in Christ. Think of Romans chapter 10, verse 15, where it says, and how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's talking about how people receive the word. They receive the word of God and the gospel message specifically through preaching and proclamation. How are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. So when a, a message of truth and power and unity between God and man is preached into the world, there's something beautiful about that. To think that we can be reconciled to God through Christ Jesus and his sacrifice for us. This message that though we have all broken the law of God and should feel guilty and condemned about that because truly we deserve to be condemned for our sin. And yet there is a God who has every right to pour his wrath out on us and he has made a, a means by which we might have that wrath and that punishment put on someone else, put on the son Jesus Christ. There's such great relief in that that this discord between God's creation and God himself can be reconciled and rectified through the blood of Jesus Christ brings harmony again where there used to be chaos and noise. So it is a beautiful message. And beautiful are the feet of those who go to preach this beautiful good news. Musical instruments are just lifeless things. And yet we can see there that they need to be working together for a purpose or else they're useless. It is still important for them to follow conventions that allow their sounds to have harmony and order. How much more important is it when applied to living things like us, like people and like their speech? 
And then verse 8 goes on to mention a second class of musical instruments. And you might not have noticed this distinction at first. Verse 7 talks about things like flutes and harps. But verse 8 says, And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? The trumpet or the bugle in biblical times is an instrument that communicates instruction. The sounds that it makes were more than just beautiful. They're more just than just your entertainment value. Those sounds were actually ordered in such a way that they sent a message to the troops in an army. This expansion on the analogy addresses the content of language. For the bugle was a very important tool for sending instructions to the troops on the field. They didn't have PA systems or inner monitors. So they taught their soldiers, if you hear this particular sound, and they would teach them to memorize a trumpet blast, then that means you're to advance. And if you hear this other very distinct sound, that means that you've got an enemy coming from your right. And if you hear this distinct sound, it means that we need you to pull back. We're going to regroup and, and, and make a new plan. So there's all these different revelries, these different sounds that the soldiers fighting could hear over even the clanging swords of battle. And those sounds were instrumental from keeping those soldiers from panicking and not knowing what was going on. Messages could be sent to them even as they focused on fighting their foe. So you can imagine that the consequences of miscommunication in an environment like that could be catastrophic. If someone plays the revelry for retreat and they really meant to play the revelry for advance, then a position that was just hard fought to obtain could be lost in just a few moments. So this, this sound, this musical sound that the trumpet makes carried more than just beautiful tones, but it also carries meaning. When I was a little child at my kindergarten class, my mom loved my kindergarten teacher. Her name was Miss Anderson. I loved her too, but not as much as my mom did. My mom just adored this lady. And Miss Anderson was 81 years old and was still teaching kindergarten to our class. And she had a system. She had literally a piano in her classroom. And when it was time for us to gather back our materials from craft time and put them away, she would play a certain song. And we would all get up. She trained us to know what that song meant. And we would go and we would do what we were called to do. The music carried a meaning to it because it was taught to us. If a message spoken in a tongue that no one can hope to understand is proclaimed in the middle of a service such as this one, even the person saying it doesn't understand it, that person's going to be speaking into the air. They're not going to be hitting their target. Whatever they're trying to say, the communication finds no real landing spot. And I, I wonder if that last part there, that speaking into the air, I wonder if Paul is using a play on words here. Perhaps Paul is alluding to sin. Because if you study hamartia, the root word of sin in the Greek language, within that range of meaning, the word means missing the mark. It was a word that they would use of an archer who's trying to shoot an arrow at a target and completely misses it. So when we sin, we are missing the mark of the holiness that God sets for us in his character. Speaking into the air is an, imagine, is an imagery that evokes to mind a, somebody who's shooting a message out in, into the world, but that message never hits its intended target. It's totally wrong. If we're called to edify one another, if that's the responsibility of the church, and if we have the truth to communicate, but we do not, at some point that becomes sin, doesn't it? And sadly, there are churches where you can come and, and you can 
have fellowship with the saints, but there's really not a lot of actual teaching of the truth going on. And it is our, our heart's desire and our conviction as elders to preach to you not just our opinions or practical, pragmatic schemes for life, but to preach to you the word of God. This message that God has given to his prophets and his, the fathers and, and to the, the apostles, we want to share that with you because it is good for each of us. We don't want to miss the mark. Moving on to the second analogy. He's talked about music here already. But Paul urges us to consider the challenge of failed communication as it plays out between people from different cultures and backgrounds. And so we might call this the analogy of relationship. We had the analogy of music, and now Paul in verse 10 moves on to the analogy of relationship. He says, There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if you do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Without a common language, we remain foreigners to one another. Now the word in the Greek there for foreigners is an interesting word. It's literally the word for barbarian. And it's indicative of a critique against a particular type of foreigner from the north whose language was so crude that it was often perceived as being nothing more than bar, 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 bar. That's where the barbarians got their name from, is by the sound that the uh, refined Roman people thought they were making when they were trying to speak. You can read about this in Colossians 3.11, where the grace of God is put on such display that there is no Scythian or even barbarian. Uh, we are all one in Christ if we know Jesus, that those boundaries, those barriers, those cultural disconnects can be torn down through the power of the Holy Spirit. So the illustration communicates a twofold problem here. When there is no real communication, it sounds unintelligent and nonsensical. It sounds uneducated. When people are just making noises and nobody can connect to what's going on and nobody can explain what's happening or point to a, a meaningful message, then it sounds ridiculous. And when there is no real communication, we remain like strangers to one another. We are as foreigners. There is no real connection. The body of Christ does not grow nearer to Christ or nearer to one another thanks to these unintelligible noises that were being passed off as speaking in tongues in this congregation. Should our minds turn to a familiar Old Testament account when we hear about these things? I think of the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. And you're probably somewhat familiar with this. If you've tried to read through the Bible in a year, maybe that's as far as you got, right? It's hard to get through this scripture in a year if you're not regimented, if you not make it a part of your everyday reading. Um, but many of you have gotten probably to chapter 11 in Genesis where after the flood, after Noah and his family are spared from the wrath of God, the world is flooded, the waters recede, and life is allowed to flourish again. And God reiterates that covenant command that he gave to Adam and Eve when he sent them out of the garden. And he tells them to go forth, to be fruitful, to multiply, and to fill the earth, and to have dominion over it. And so the people start to go out, and they start to fill the earth. But then uh, a certain descendant of Noah, uh, a man named Nimrod, decides that he has designs on making himself more powerful and building an empire for himself. So rather than going out into the world, he begins to build up. He sets still where he's at, and he begins to build his power and consolidate where he's at. And begin to build this mighty tower. And if you read through the scriptures there, it kind of seems a little bit strange. It's almost like, uh, like God is threatened by the tower, where he's not. 
Um, but it, it, he does see that there's a danger to this tower because as long as these people are building something to exalt themselves, they're not going to be going out into the world to fulfill the mandate of the covenant that they were given. And so God does something to halt the progress on that tower. He confuses their languages. He makes them like barbarians to each other, like bar, 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 right? They can't understand what each other is saying. And there, then you start to have this division of people groups. Those who could understand each other went together and those who could not form different groups. And, and the powers of those men was limited. And yet now, with the coming of the Messiah and the expansion of the grace of God to all the nations of the world, we have a godly truth that all people need to hear. And it is a message that we can unite under. Here is the revelation of God, that the Messiah has come, that there is hope and salvation in the Son of God. Wouldn't we want to share this truth with the whole world? Wouldn't we want this message to resound in every single language? I hope that is your heart's desire. And yet, in this redefinition of what it means to speak in tongues, the people of Corinth were taking what had been revealed and made clear this wonderful mystery that was now knowable, and they were reconcealing it. They were making it as if it was ununderstandable again. Essentially, they were hiding the divine exhibition of God. What could benefit from this? Would it not hurt those who needed to hear the message of hope? Would it not keep them as strangers and foreigners to one another who might otherwise draw near as brothers and sisters in the family of faith? Who might otherwise proclaim amen in the gathered sanctuary to things being uttered? Verse 12 says, So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. He says, I'm not trying to pour water on your desire to be filled with the Spirit and use the gifts of the Spirit, but use them rightly. Do it for the right reasons. Do it so that your brothers will be benefited and blessed by it. Do it so that the gospel may spread to the nations and the church may be built up in strength. Paul's going to lay out some very practical guidelines for public worship here. So let's look again at verses 13 and 14. He says, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What are they to do? They're to pray to interpret what is professed through them in this powerful way. So what Paul's doing here is he is ramping up into admonition and correction now. The problem has been identified. Its dangers have been exposed. So Paul will clearly and carefully create boundaries that are to be followed and obeyed in the context of public worship. He gives us the first glimpse at one of those important boundaries by urging them to pray for interpretation. That the Spirit, if He's going to give them these noises, then that, that God would also provide through themselves or through another interpreter the ability to know what those noises mean. And in two weeks, we're going to tackle the section beginning in verse 26 in this chapter. And at that point, we're going to deal more fully with this instruction to pray for God to supply an interpreter to redeem the ecstatic languages that were being used. We're going to take a look at the regulative principle of worship in two weeks and how that principle worked to guard the Corinthians from deceit and confusion and how it can continue to protect the church today. But for the sake of time this morning, we're going to focus on the personal account that follows the instruction of verse 13. The Apostle Paul launches into an argument that recognizes that activities which may appear spiritual in nature are not actually spiritual if there is no meaning to them. 
Paul does this in verse 14 by using himself as a case study. He personalizes the need to consider the implications of the dilemma. Here's what he says. He says, For if I pray in a tongue, and I want to stop there for a second, because I, this is worth clarifying here. Remember last week, we talked about the book of Acts chapter 2. and We talked about the instances of tongues showing up throughout that account, which is a record of the Holy Spirit at work in the earliest days of the church. And we talked about how every instruction that the, the Bible seems to give us on speaking in tongues describes it as a means by which other people might hear the gospel preached in their native language. And so he says, for if I pray in a tongue, and, and so here he's switching his stance. We'll be saying, saying this according to the Corinthian redefinition of what it means to speak in a tongue. He's saying, so, like, so not the biblical tongues, but if I speak in the kind of tongues that you all are speaking with in Corinth, he says, then my spirit's going to pray with my mind, or my spirit's going to pray, but my mind is unfruitful. Paul's warning them of a disconnect here. The spirit and the mind are not on the same page. My spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Why does it matter that they're not connected? Can't spiritual prayer be beneficial even if we can't understand what it means? It would be useful here to return our minds to something the Savior taught us in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel. So if you've got your scripture you want to open there, I'm going to be reading a section from John chapter 4 in just a moment. Let me catch us up to speed so that we don't read the whole passage here. Jesus and his disciples are traveling. Uh, The scripture tells us they must go through Samaria. Christ is always and ever led by the guidance of the Father. He's complete dependence on the Father when he is in flesh. And so they have to go through Samaria. The disciples are off securing some supplies for the journey while Jesus stays behind to get a drink at a local well. He's probably starting to identify the story now. Here he finds a woman, and she's not of Jewish descent. She's of Samaritan descent. And she's there by herself in the middle of the day. It would have been common for Jesus to ignore this woman. And Jews and Samaritans had no cultural dealings with each other. In fact, they were at great conflict with one another. So the fact that she was so very different with him, he had every, every reason to not speak to her. And she had every reason not to speak with him. Not only that, but rabbis typically would not interact with a woman by themselves as a measure of accountability. So in spite of these social roadblocks, Jesus approaches her at the well and he asks her for a drink. The ensuing conversation is worth our attention, but we only have time to focus on one aspect of what they discussed that day. As Jesus begins to discuss very personal aspects of this woman's life, she appears to get a little uncomfortable, a little antsy, and she attempts to turn the subject to something that would push Jesus away. He's trying to push him closer to her. He's revealing to her that he knows some of the struggles that she's going through. He has discerned some of the sins that she's dealing with in her life, and so he, he shows her that he knows more than a normal man would. And so here's how she responds. She pushes away. She says, your people worship in Jerusalem. Our people worship at the high places. So she brings up a division between them. She tries to go back to what should divide them and keep them from being near to one another. You see, the Samaritans, who were half-breed Jewish people, they were descendants of the Jews, but they had intermarried with people who worshiped pagan gods. And so their doctrine of Yahweh had been polluted and affected by not only the practices of worship of the people that they married into, but also some of their ideas of who God was and what he did for people. These Samaritans were trying to worship Yahweh, but they were getting it wrong. They were going to these high places, these Asherah poles, and places on top of mountains where other gods had been worshipped in the past, and they were trying to worship Yahweh in the pattern of people of 
the lost world around them. They had the heart to continue in the way of the covenant, but not in all of the ways of the covenant. So they had amended the word of the Lord to allow them the freedom to worship independently of the Jews in the south. They didn't want to have to go back down to the southern kingdom. They were too proud of that. They didn't want to go to the southern kingdom, which is where the temple was in Jerusalem. So they amended the word of God so they can do it their own way. So Jesus takes hold of this opportunity to teach us something about worship in general. And in John chapter 4, starting in verse 19, we read, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. In other words, neither one of these places is going to be the designated place for worship in just a short while. Verse 22, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. So what Jesus is telling this woman, He's saying, you worship what you do not know. In other words, you're worshiping, but you're missing a lot of the pieces of the puzzle here. You have pushed to the side some of the guidelines for worship that God has given to you. And we're going to see this in two weeks when we look at the regulative principle. The Samaritans were not regulative in their worship. They were normative. They just did what was acceptable in the day. And so that was a danger. And it hurt their relationship with God. When he says you, he's not just speaking of this woman. He's speaking of all the Samaritan people. They were not giving glory to God the way that God had commanded them to give him glory. And in contrast, Jesus speaks of the Jews when he says, we worship what we know. Now, he's not saying that the Jews' worship is perfect. Christ's was. But the people that he ministered to, those Jewish people in the South, he had to constantly correct them. He had to constantly uh, speak to them of the ways that they were worshiping wrongfully because their hearts were not in it. They had the format of worship properly. They had the structure of it down pat because the Jews were the keeper of the law. But the place where they failed was in the spirit. Their spirit was not worshiping God as it should. While the Jews by and large knew of God, many of their most respected leaders did not know God in a personal sense. They knew his ways, they knew his will for the covenant people, but their hearts were very far from him. They were worshiping in the right ways, but their worship was incomplete because they worshiped in truth, but they worshiped without spirit. Reformer John Calvin comments on this text, and he explains what it means to worship God in spirit. Listen carefully what he says here. This will also be on the screen. He says, The worship of God is said to consist in the spirit because it is nothing else than that inward faith of the heart which produces prayer. And next, purity of conscience and self-denial that we may be dedicated to obedience to God as holy sacrifices. So when we worship in spirit, there is something internal that's happening in us. It is sparked on by the spirit whereby we worship with a purity of conscience and a self-denial where we want more of Christ and less of ourselves. And so Paul is addressing a serious flaw in the Corinthian expression of tongues. Like the Samaritans, the Corinthians were practicing a kind of worship that had appeared, had appearance of spirituality, but was actually devoid of truth in so much as the speaker um, was speaking 
to put themselves on display. They were not speaking in such a way to, to show the grandeur and the beauty of God as a means of self-denial. It was an act instead of self-promotion. And since the tongues that they were speaking in were not expressions of an authentic, true revelation of God, nor were those expressions pointing people to Jesus Christ specifically, they were not even accomplishing real worship. Staying with the personal application theme, Paul tells the Corinthians how he would respond in light of this danger. It's also the way that he urges them to respond. He says, what am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. He's correcting the way they have been doing things in their worship services, where they've been allowing people to worship with this spiritual expression, allegedly, but it was mindless and had no truth. He says, that's not how I would do it. I would worship with my spirit. I would worship in a way that's loving and engaged with God, that is humble and self-denying, but I would insist on also doing it with my mind. And the more difficult question is today, church, are we doing that? Are we worshiping our God in this pattern that Paul sets forth for us, in spirit and in truth? Because it is still quite possible to have one without the other. Christian, how many times do you come into the worship service and you know you're supposed to be here and you know you're supposed to have your teeth brushed and you know you're supposed to carry that book with you and all those boxes are checked off, but you sit down in that seat and it takes maybe a half an hour before you're actually thinking about the wonder of Christ. It takes a half an hour before you're not fiddling through your worship binder, your folder, half an hour before you're not chasing your kids back into the seat, out of the aisle, before you're really sitting there and thinking, you know what, I'm here because God is great. And I have been given the blessed opportunity to come and give him glory and praise and honor. We will often worship truthfully, but forget to engage the spirit in our worship. The flip side is also quite possible too, isn't it? Where people seem very excited about the Lord, super ecstatic about something spiritual that's going on in their lives, but they're not really paying attention to the scripture, which tells them how to understand the spiritual things that God is doing in their lives. They, they, they allow the norms of their culture to dictate how their spiritual experiences will play out rather than going to the word of God and letting God direct them through things in a truthful and ordered way. Are you content to worship God with your feelings but stubbornly withholding your mind from him? Are you very interested in knowing the truth of God and perhaps excited about pointing out where others get it wrong. But all this while, knowledge is doing little to stoke the embers of your heart's fires and your affection and appreciation for God. Does that describe you, Christian? Are you loving him with your mind, but keeping your heart for other things? Paul notes that this comprehensive spirit truth worship extends to various aspects of our faith. And so he makes note of two of them here. He says, I will pray in spirit and in truth. Let our prayers never become rote, mechanical outpourings of the same five phrases over and over again just so we can get to our eating or just so we can get to bed at night. Don't let your prayer with God be a prayer of mind only but with no spirit. On the flip side, let our spirit truly worship the Lord God in prayer and let us do it in an intelligible way. As much as we can, let us profess to God in our prayers what he has shown us about himself. Let us share with him our fears and our hurts. Let us articulate our failures to him as we confess them out and trust that his son, Jesus Christ, has the power to overcome those things. 
Let us pray in spirit and in truth. And he says, not just my prayer, friends, but my singing. Let us sing in spirit and in truth. Some of the songs that we sing are so familiar to us. They're standards that have been around forever that you could sing them in your sleep and not even have to look at your worship bulletin. But you could also kind of sing them on autopilot, couldn't you? And I know that there are folks who I've shared the gospel with who came to Christ who the first Christmas after they were saved, they said, whoa, these songs, I think about them so much differently now. I've been singing these as a lost person for years. My mind was never engaged in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. I didn't really know what that meant, but it was pretty and it was in a Christmas special on TV. So I started singing it with my family and we've been singing it for years. But now as a believer, I'm learning that Christ is the promised Messiah and I'm learning that he is the fulfillment of a multitude of promises that were delivered to us in Isaiah and in Zechariah and in the Psalms and he has truly come. And so now as I sing that song, it is something important to me. It's not just pretty and it's not just cultural. It is a proclamation of what I believe to be true, a humbling truth which makes me appreciate and thank God for all the lengths that he has gone to to redeem a people for himself. So let us sing in spirit. Let us sing also in truth. Don't be afraid to let the spirit wake you up in a song to, to convict your heart. Don't be afraid to lament, friends. We live in a culture where lamentations is something that Americans just run from. They don't ever want to be sad about anything. But sometimes we need to mourn over our sin because once we've mourned over our sin, we can more accurately rejoice over our redemption, right? When I know the weight of what I've done wrong and how I've broken God's law, right after that wave of, of regret and sorrow comes a bigger wave of rejoicing and gratitude that God would wash away those sins through the blood of Christ. So let us pray, let us sing, let us preach in spirit and in truth. Let us serve in spirit and in truth. Let us give in spirit and in truth all that we do unto the Lord. Let these two elements define how we worship our God. Moving on in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 16 says, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Before I get to verses 16 and 17, let me look at verses 18 and 19 first because those tend to stick in people's minds. Does Paul here confess to using a secret prayer language at the end of the passage? Some commentators say that yes. Paul is here shocking the Corinthians by confessing to do the very thing that they were doing in the worship services, but only doing it on his own time and even doing it more often than any of them do it. But again, as we established in last week's sermon, the scripture only describes in positive detail the kind of gift in tongues we see in Acts chapter 2, the kind used to communicate truth to those who did not speak the native tongues uh, of the apostles, and the kind that showed that the message of God was going out into Gentile languages and not only into the language of the Hebrews. So there is no reason to think that when Paul says he speaks in tongues here, that he's abandoning that established definition of tongues in favor of their unintelligible ecstatic expressions. It actually makes more sense, friends, that Paul is saying this. There is a gift of tongues. 
based on what you are doing in your churches, you have never used that gift because your gift doesn't communicate anything. I have, however, been filled in such a way as a means of communicating the gospel and as a sign that Isaiah 28 has come to pass. See, I, I speak in tongues more than any of you because I've actually spoken in tongues, says Paul. You haven't. The Spirit has moved him in that way. Besides, if Paul is talking about a private prayer language here, how can he know that he speaks in tongues more frequently than they do? Wouldn't that be private? How does he know what's going on in their homes? It makes more sense that Paul is saying that he has spoken in tongues legitimately, but he would rather prophesy five words in the gathered service than 10,000 words in the kind of garbled tongues that they're calling tongues in their gatherings. So returning to verse 16, here we get the first consideration of how these ecstatic tongues might impact the person who is not a brother or sister in the faith. How will anyone who is in the position of an outsider, it says, how will they receive this? And the, the word for outsider is kind of a funny word. It's idioto, idioto. It sounds kind of like idiot. Yeah, you, you guys got that. Y'all have been doing great with your Greek studies. Excellent work there, okay? But that word has come to mean something a little bit different than it did before. When used in the context of religious practice, idioto was somebody who was aspiring to a faith but had not yet been accepted in fully yet. So we don't know if that's exactly the, the tone that Paul is using here. We don't have enough context to say with absolute certainty that's what he means here, but it makes sense that these are maybe people who are in the congregation who are interested in, in the gospel. They've heard bits of the, of the message of Christ and they've come to learn more. They're not yet baptized, but they're engaging in this. Perhaps the Spirit is moving them, perhaps not. I hope every church in America has people like that in it this morning hearing the gospel preached so that the gospel can be made more clear to them and so that the, the Spirit would have more occasion to open their eyes to the truth. So these are the kind of persons I think that Paul is talking about here. How will the outsider, the one who is interested but not yet a Christian, how are they going to respond to you standing up in the middle of the, the congregation, perhaps in the middle of a sermon, and just speaking in tongues that no one, including the speaker, can understand? Paul suggests that that outsider is going to have no opportunity to say amen to that. If they came to evaluate, if they came to look at Christ and to see him for what he is, they're not going to see Christ in that garbled mess. They won't be able to say, you know what, you're right. I am a sinner. I need to confess my sin. I need to repent. You're right. I cannot work my way to heaven. All of my religious activities will never get me there. You're right. It is in the, the body, the person, the work of Christ that God has fulfilled all of these Old Testament prophecies from hundreds of years ago. I say amen to that. But how are they going to do that if the worship gathering consists of a bunch of people rattling off random words that don't mean anything? Even if these mysterious tongues are being expressed with gratitude by the one who speaks it out, somebody stands up, they say a whole bunch of things, and they say, wow, I'm so grateful that the Lord spoke to me in that way. If no one else knows what's going on, and if that person isn't even aware of what the message means, then how is anyone going to say amen to that? They're going to all feel completely left out like foreigners and strangers. They cannot take part. Unless, and here's an added danger, unless they start to pretend to know what is happening so that they don't feel like they're perpetually on the outside. And I think, sadly, that this has happened in a lot of churches today where the charismata, the, the speaking in tongues that doesn't have any message to it is so commonplace in those churches and little ones are raised up hearing it so much that they want to feel like they're a part of what's going on. And so they listen carefully and they repeat, but they don't actually have a movement of the Spirit that's making that happen at all. 
it becomes like the emperor's new clothes. You remember that fable probably where a, an emperor commissions the greatest, uh, um, the greatest tailor in the land to produce for him a special set of clothes that, that will be unlike any other set of clothes ever worn. And so this uh, tailor is quite an intelligent person. And so he says, well, here's what I'm doing, king. I am using a very special kind of thread. And he starts to do the motions of the loom. And he says, this thread is so special that only nobility can see it. Do you like the color of it? Is it attractive to you? The king, not wanting to feel as though he is somehow below that high standard, says, yes, that's a beautiful thread you have there. What a gorgeous piece of material you are weaving for me. And he buys into this lie because he doesn't want to be the non-noble dummy who doesn't get it. And then he puts on this fake outfit and he walks out into the masses and says, behold, this beautiful outfit and only the noblest can see the beauty of this outfit and everyone's laughing at him because he's naked. He's exposed. He's acting shamefully. But unfortunately, a lot of people just play along with things like that because they too want to seem like nobility. And so we don't want this supposed gift of tongues to create a subculture within the church that is completely different from what God intended tongues to even be. A few concluding thoughts. We are called here to worship in spirit and in truth, but can we afford to ignore this challenge? You might not feel inclined to speak in a tongue, but are there other worshipful expressions that you might make without engaging your mind to it? When you sing, you consider the words of what you were singing. Perhaps you're even fully sold out to the musical aspects. You, you love the sound of it. It's driving you. It's, it's moving you emotionally. But are you truly thinking about what it tells you of your Savior and the eternal truth that it proclaims about a God who never changes and is so holy and different from every other being that he has created? When you take communion, are you going to walk forward in a mechanical way? Just take your bread, take your juice. Are you going to consume these products without really considering the brutal punishment Christ had to go through in order to procure our salvation. And whether that moment is meaningful or not is not a matter of whim. It's a matter of discipline. Are you going to spiritually engage in this process or are you going to just put it on autopilot and go through the motions? Christmas, right? We're in a season right now that many people get so swept up with the commercial aspects of it or even the more nobler aspects, like it's all about family. It's all about coming together and being generous to one another. Are you going to go through those motions without even thinking about the radical reality that a God who has always existed took on a human form by placing himself in the womb of a virgin, that he was born like all of us were born through trauma into heartache in a land filled with sin, and yet through his total life, Christ lived according to the law that he was born under without ever breaking it. Are you going to think about those lofty and, and wondrous truths? Or is Christmas just going to be the end of the year again? Is it just going to be the time when all the businesses get back in the black? I pray, church, that we will engage our king in spirit and in truth, that we would desire and pray that God would move our hearts, but never beyond the boundaries of what his scripture tells us is worship that is pleasing to him. Let's pray for a moment, and then we're going to transition to the table. God, we praise you and thank you for all that you do in teaching us through your mighty word. 
And I pray, Father, that as we engage in our personal devotions through the week, Lord, that you would continue to bring this topic up to mind, God, that you would use those other scriptures to reinforce and to strengthen our understanding and to give us even greater clarity. We know that you are a good and holy God and that you are on display best and, and most accurately in your word. So, Father, help us to keep that word before us always. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.